When I was in seminary, I worked a full-time job as an accounting clerk in a cardiology clinic, and the clinic had four separate locations, and we all had to work together, and at times, because we were in separate locations and everybody did things a little bit differently, it made it, made it difficult. So to get us all on the same page, at times we would have these day-long seminars in a central location to, to, to get us all playing in the same sand pit again, get us all on the same page. And, and at times we would meet uh, to discuss our job and, and things we had to accomplish on a daily basis and so that we could m- work more efficiently together. We would gather together for that reason. Uh, other topics dealt with behavioral issues, proper way to conduct yourself in the workplace. Believe me, that was needed at times as well. One of the more memorable seminars for me was one on how to get along with others in the, in the workplace. And we spent an entire day on this one topic. And what made the, the, the seminar so memorable was the speaker. The guy was a very dynamic guy, extremely gifted communicator. And he provided a lot of activities for us and, and object lessons that made the points that he shared with us more memorable. And of all the, the seminars we attended while I worked there, uh, that was the one I, I remember people coming back and, and talking about. And when we got back to the office, the talk around the water cooler uh, was about all the wonderful principles that we learned from that, from that uh, seminar. I talked with one lady who said she was so impressed with the principles presented that she was going to apply them in her home as well. One of the principles that he really talked a lot about that people continued to talk about as the day went on was the importance of being a servant in the workplace, of, of humbly putting others before yourself. He, he shared with us that the key to getting along with others in the workplace is to take on the I'm second mentality that says the needs of others come First, He said, putting others first is so important. Serving others before yourself is the key to having a peaceful and productive work environment. And I remember some of the co-workers talking about that concept as if they had never heard it before. But believers, we know that that principle is nothing new, right? Putting others first originated with God and is what he calls for his people to be doing in his word. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he told his followers more than a few times that the greatest among them will be the last. He says in Mark 4.35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And Jesus not only taught this, he exampled this for us. So this morning, we are going to look to the perfect example of serving others first, putting others before ourselves by looking to the example, by looking to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. We are continuing our sermon series on our mission statement 
entitled Discovering Fellowship. And to begin, let's look at our church's mission statement again. I know that we've looked at this quite a few times. Uh, Audra, and our, our, I'll brag on her in our small group, recited it uh, for us in small group last Wednesday night. So I, I know she's getting it, and others of you as well. This is our mission statement. Fellowship Bible Church exists for the purpose of making disciples by escorting people to Christ, establishing people in truth, and equipping people for ministry. And what we have discussed in this study so far is that the church is to be the place where this happens. Several weeks ago I shared with you that we at Fellowship are about making disciples. And to support this biblically, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4 and discussed the role of the pastor-teacher. That that it is the the pastor-teacher's role to do just that. To use the gifts that God has given him to equip believers to use their gifts for the purpose of ministry so that the body of Christ is built up. That's the what aspect of our mission statement, to make disciples. If someone were to ask you, what is your church all about? You can tell them, we're all about making disciples, as it says in the scriptures. In the weeks following, we have been answering the how aspect of our mission statement. How are we to be doing this? How are we to be going about making disciples? A couple of weeks ago, we explained that one way we do this is we, we, one way we move people toward maturity in Christ in the churches in and through corporate worship. We talked about the fact that this is the time and this is the place where you get equipped through the preaching and teaching of the word, through your interaction, through your worship alongside other believers. This is where you get equipped to worship God properly in a way that brings glory and honor to Him. If worship is to be based upon the truth, which it is, then this is the place where you get equipped in that truth so that you think rightly, believe rightly, and therefore you live rightly. You need to be coming here on a regular basis so that you can get equipped to worship God properly. Last week, we continued with our study discussing that a second way people grow in Christ, grow in godliness, is by connecting with other believers, living in community with them. And we discussed that for us to be who God has called for us to be, we cannot live our lives in isolation as Christians. We must connect with other believers. And this is to be the time and the place where God's people gather and, and during our ministries throughout the week, it's the time when we, when we commune with God's people and we are instructed together in the word and we pour into one another for the purpose of sharpening one another so that we grow in godliness. Very, very important. Well, this week we're going to continue with the how of our mission statement by talking about Serving. We at Fellowship are about serving. We're going to look to our perfect example of service and humility by looking to the Lord Jesus and discuss how we as believers are to be following His example. But before we do, we're reminded once again this week in Philippians 2 that we're jumping right into the middle of the book, so we need some help contextually to understand what Paul is saying here in Philippians 2. 
Paul is writing from prison. This is one of his prison epistles, and he writes an epistle of joy. When I preached through Philippians about nine years ago, uh, I entitled that sermon, Joy from a Jailhouse, because Paul is writing an epistle of joy from prison. He's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ at the church at Philippi. And we gather from Paul's letter to them, this is one of the healthier churches of Paul's. They were very close to Paul. They faithfully supported him over the years, prayerfully, financially, and physically. They sent their own to go work with Paul to serve alongside him in ministry. So Paul, in response, speaks higher of them than the other churches in his letters. Yet while that is the case, the Christians at Philippi were not grace graduates. They had their issues. And one of the key issues they had was with unity. The believers in this church struggled at times to get along. So in verses 1 through 4 of Philippians 2, Paul calls for them to be unified and he shows that humility is the way to unity. He says in verses 3 through 4 of Philippians 2, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, can we be honest for just a moment in here and state that that is more easy to say than to do? And the reason why, and I'm speaking of myself too, selfishness and pride are the most common problems in our lives. And and Paul, knowing this is the case, and knowing good examples of humility are hard to find, few and far between, he puts forth the best he's got. In Jesus. This morning we are going to look at Christ's supreme example of humility and service and discuss what that should mean for us. Here is the first principle we learn as we examine Christ's life. Number one, when it comes to serving, don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't think too highly of yourself. Look at how Paul begins. This passage, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now let's stop there for just a minute. We learned something right off the bat here about the kind of service that pleases God. We learned that attitude is to precede action. Notice Paul does not first call for the Christians at Philippi to do the right things. He calls for them to think the right way and to be the right way. Do you see that? Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? What mind? The mind of Christ. He is is telling them that in order for them to live in a way that brings glory and honor to God, they must be first transformed from the inside out. Their hearts must be changed. Their minds must be renewed. And God must do that work, right? Theology 101 tells us that as we start out in this life, because of the fall of, of Adam, we don't have the mind of Christ because of our sinfulness. 
Our minds and hearts must be changed by God's grace through the accomplished work of His Son and by the inward work of the Holy Spirit. If our hearts are not changed, it doesn't matter what we say or do in this life. It does not honor God. Our minds and hearts must be right before our actions bring glory and honor to Him. We must have the mind of Christ. Paul explains what this mindset is, verse 6. Look at it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In, in verse 6, we are told that Christ was in the form of God. Paul is, is taking us back to a time before Christ's earthly existence. He is showing us that before the Son took on flesh and became a man, He existed in eternity past in the form of God. The word form here has nothing to do with shape and size. God is spirit. The Bible often describes God in human shape to help our finite minds understand certain attributes that God has. But He is spirit, John 4, 24. Form here means, get this, the outward expression of the inward nature of God. Jesus was in the form of God. Look at what Stephen Lawson says in his commentary on Philippians. Look at this quote. From eternity past, Jesus was fully and truly divine. From before time began, He has always possessed all of the divine perfections that belong to God alone. Jesus was in the form of God from before the foundation of the world. The divine perfections that have belonged to the Father are also the eternal possession of the Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. Notice his mindset. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even though he was equal in nature, essence, and form with God, Paul tells us that Christ refused to cling to his equality with God. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a a, a thing to be grasped, a thing to cling to. And believers, aren't you glad he didn't? Aren't you glad that, that Jesus did not count equality with God a a thing to cling to. Aren't you glad he didn't say, I have the same nature and essence as the Father. I am one with him. I am equal to him. I am God. Therefore, I refuse to be a part of my creation because I am creator God. Aren't you glad he didn't say that? Because that would have left us in a helpless and hopeless state spiritually. Now, before we move on, I need to say this to clear up any confusion you may have. When Paul says that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that does not mean he exchanged deity for humanity. He never ceased to be God. It means he set aside his prerogatives as God, taking on the limitations of man. He added to his person a human nature without surrendering any of his divine nature. He did not cling to all the advantages that come with being God because he became one of us. 
For example, as a man, he experienced beginning and end. God has no beginning and end, right? But as a man, he experienced that limitation in space and time and in knowledge. As a man, he did. Read the gospel accounts. He was truly man. It's a mystery, the incarnation is. We're going to be talking about a little plug for our equipping class. Come join us for our difficult doctrine study. We're going to be looking at the incarnation of, of Christ in more depth there. Why did he do this? Why did Christ do this? To fulfill the will of the Father and out of a love for and for the sake of sinful humanity. In other words, he, he thought of others first. He had an unselfish concern for others. I heard recently someone say that if you want to find out what a good employee is, a good worker is, what, if you want to find out what they're really like, don't give them responsibilities, give them privileges. Any decent worker can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough. But it takes a real leader to handle privileges. A good leader will use his privileges to help others and build the organization. A lesser man will use privileges given to him to promote self and to further his own agenda. Jesus used his heavenly privileges for the sake of others, for our sake. And notice that's the exact opposite of what Satan did, right? He had a privileged position. But he said, I will... Instead of thy will, he wanted the position of creator instead of serving in the privileged position given to him by the creator as a created being. Adam did the same thing. He was set to rule over the earth and instead he wanted to be like God and he rebelled. Christ was the opposite. You remember what Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He was rich, believers, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. We're to have this mindset ourselves. Now here's the ironic thing about this situation. Christ who is in the very nature of form and essence of God. He could have selfishly clung to these divine advantages. He could have refused to humble himself, but he didn't. But, but us, who are infinitely less than him, are not willing to humble ourselves. So important for us to remind ourselves of Christ's humility, because let's be honest, we need more of it, don't we? We often think too highly of ourselves. We think that we are above certain things. There are things that are, that are beneath us so we don't take on certain roles because that's just that's below where I am. Listen, while Scripture is clear that we are significant insofar as we are created in God's image, Scripture is also clear that we're not nearly as great and as important as we think we are. We live as if we're the center of the universe. What do we learn from Scripture? God is. Being reminded of how Christ humbled himself should put things into perspective for us as believers and should affect the way we view ourselves and our service 
toward others. May we learn to reason in this way. If Christ, who is infinitely greater than us, did not consider His status as something to cling to, then neither should we. If He could humble Himself, how much more so should we? John Calvin, in his commentary on Philippians, said this. I love this quote. Since then the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. True. So don't think too highly of yourself. Second thing we learn here, second principle we learn as we look at Christ's example is we should never refuse to serve because of status. Never refuse to serve because of status. Look at verse 7. Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now again, when Paul says that Christ made himself nothing or emptied himself, again, don't think in terms of subtraction, him giving up divine attributes, but rather in terms of addition. Not in terms of what Christ gave up, but instead look at him emptying himself in terms of what he took on. Paul is not saying that that Christ became less than God or gave up some divine attribute. Pay, Pay close attention to the wording here. Nothing is subtracted from Christ. Instead, something is added to him. Paul says Christ made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, Christ emptied himself by becoming one of us. That should humble us, shouldn't it? He emptied himself by becoming like you and me. By becoming a man, Christ did something he did not have to do. He he took on a role he did not have to take on. Again, if this is true of Christ, how much more so should this be true of us? There are certain areas of service that need to be done in the church and certain people won't do it because they just believe they're above it. Listen, Christ could have rightly said, I am God, I'm not going to empty myself, I'm not going to become one of my created beings, I am above that, but aren't you glad that he didn't? Christ had every right to stay where he was and cling to all the benefits that come from his divine status. But instead, he emptied himself. He became one of us. He came to us in our time of need. And Paul tells us here in Philippians 2 that we're to have this mind in us. We're to follow in his footsteps. As Christ humbled himself and served us in our time of need, Paul calls for us to do that for others, to not refuse to serve because of status. He basically says, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a lawyer, a a doctor, a wealthy, successful businessman. I don't care how many letters you have behind your name. If Christ became poor so that you might become rich, if he stepped off his throne and wrapped a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet, if he did not come to be served but to serve, how much more so should you? We don't have any excuse, do we? When we look at Christ's example, look at this quote, Stephen Lawson again, great quote from his commentary on Philippians. What right have we to refuse when the one with every right to refuse did not? 
Every believer must clothe himself with the common rags of servanthood. We must make whatever sacrifice is necessary for the good of others. Given this example, none of us can ever humble ourselves too much. Let me say that again. None of us can ever humble ourselves too much. Given this example, none of us will ever surpass the humility that Christ has demonstrated. We don't have a leg to stand on, do we? Number three, third thing we learn from Christ's example is that we're to be willing to go above and beyond for others in our service toward them. Paul says this, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did Jesus go above and beyond for us? Better believe it. Every step of the way to Calvary, he did. From heaven to earth, from glory to shame, from master to servant, from life to death. He was found in human form. Once again, the the, the creator entered into creation as a man. Not just any man, a lowly man. The son of a carpenter from Nazareth, his glory concealed. He appeared outwardly as just another face in the crowd. John wrote, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. We're told that even the uh, most religious at the time didn't believe in him and even those in Jesus' own family, his brothers, had their doubts for a time. For the majority of his ministry, Christ's glory was concealed and he did not try and hide this lowly state or avoid it. We're the exact opposite of that, aren't we? We do all we can to avoid appearing lowly. Another way Christ went above and beyond for us is by being obedient for us. You know, Christ not only died for us, he he lived for us. We're not saved by our works, we're saved through His. The reason He had to come to earth as a a newborn baby is because He had to do what we could never do by doing what Adam failed to do. He had to live His life in perfect obedience to God for us. Paul says in Romans 5.19, Through the obedience of the one, the many, will be made righteous. Only through Christ's righteous life can we be considered righteous. And not only that, Paul also tells us that Jesus went much further than that by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice Paul separates the two, death and death by crucifixion. There was certainly a difference. Crucifixion was the cruelest most painful and shameful form of execution ever conceived. It didn't originate with the Romans, but we're told that they perfected the practice. It was reserved for slaves, the lowest of criminals, enemies of the state. No Roman citizen could be crucified no matter how terrible their crime because of how shameful it was. The Jewish people viewed it as being a curse 
to die in that way. So Paul shows us in this passage that Christ went above and beyond for us. Not only did he refuse to, to cling to equality with God, not only was he, was he empty, did he empty himself by taking on flesh, he went beyond being a lowly servant to the point of enduring a painful death on a shameful cross in our place. And the point, again, Paul is making is very, very simple. If Christ humbled himself to this extent, how much more so should you be willing to humble yourselves? C.T. Studd said this. Look at this quote. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Yes. We're going to follow Christ's example. We've got to be willing to sacrifice. We've got to be willing to go above and beyond in our service to others. If the purest of all to ever live could endure betrayal, denial, trial, beating, mockery, crucifixion, the very wrath of God for us, how much more so should we be willing to obey God and sacrifice by going above and beyond for others. One last point. One last thing we see here from Christ's example. Number four, there is joy to be experienced through humility, service, and sacrifice. See, we often think the opposite. We think we have to forfeit joy to serve in this way. But really, the two go hand in hand. There is joy in the midst of, of serving the Lord and serving others in this way. There was for Christ and there is for us. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Although Jesus humbled himself and put aside divine privileges that were rightfully his and became a servant, he became one of us, he was obedient to the point of a painful death on a shameful cross, it is important that we remember he did not remain in that lowly state. Although Christ emptied himself by taking on flesh while his glory was concealed and he endured punishment and shame at the cross on our behalf, God the Father responds by highly exalting him, by giving him the name that is above all names. Folks, we learn here from Christ that while humility and service are not always easy, while at times it's very, very difficult, get this, the joy and the blessing to be experienced through it is unmatched. A key teaching we see throughout Scripture is that God exalts the humble while punishing the proud. Christ says in Matthew 23, 11 through 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we see the supreme example of this in what the Father does for the Lord Jesus. He exalted his Son 
He bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at his name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today, folks, you have a decision to make on whether you will bow the knee to Christ. So we said at the beginning to live our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to Him in our service to others. We must first be changed from the inside out. Our hearts must be changed. Our minds must be renewed. And for that to happen, we must surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus. We must lay our lives down before Him, surrendering to His Lordship. Scripture is clear. There is coming a day when all of creation will, will recognize Him as the Lord of all creation, as the King of all kings. Now, does that mean all will be saved? Say no. No. Scripture clearly teaches the opposite. In that day, those who have loved Christ and have trusted in Him and have faithfully followed Him in this life will bow in adoration and worship of Him as they await eternity spent with Him in glory. While those who have refused to follow Him in this life and have refused to recognize His authority and His divine right to rule will bow in submission to Him and fear of Him as they await judgment from Him. Either way, Christ is going to be exalted. Regardless of our activity, He will be. So I urge you today to confess Him as Lord now. Trust in Him alone for your salvation and faithfully follow Him. God sent Christ to live, die, and rise again so that we through Him could be forgiven, restored, and have life eternal in Him. I invite you today to forsake your sin and fall before King Jesus, surrendering to Him as Lord today. Say to Him today, Lord, up to this point in my life, I've been doing things my own way, on my own terms, and Lord, I've come to realize my way is the wrong way. I surrender all to You. Do that today. If you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, forsake your sin, bow the knee to King Jesus, and be saved right here, right now today. Let's pray together.